apparently our intelligence in this year, the beginning of this year, told us that the Chinese were concerned that President Trump, in attempting to lash out and derail the process that was going to remove him from office after the election, uh, wanted to might want to create a war as a distraction. And uh, we haven't heard, and I doubt that if it is the case, that the Chinese were concerned that President Trump would, in the first instance, launch a nuclear attack. We haven't heard that. I think it's doubtful they believed it, and it's doubtful that it would have occurred, especially an all-out nuclear attack. What we have heard is that the Chinese were concerned, and, and discussed this with General Milley, that he would take some military action that would result in armed conflict, which could escalate to all-out war, and that in Milley's eyes, he was concerned that the action he, they were afraid of might be serious enough that they would want to preempt it in some case. Let me just off the top of my head give an example of that. If the president uh, announced that in our commitment to defend Taiwan, we planned to return to Taiwan with a military base, a marine base or fighter pilots or whatever is part of that, that could very well prompt a preemptive attack, not a nuclear attack, of course, but an attack that would preclude the possibility of Taiwan again becoming a base. And that would be an attack uh, probably involving U.S. casualties, which could obviously quickly escalate. Now, Milley took the Chinese concern seriously and uh, as something not neurotic, crazy, that could not be dispelled uh, by any reassurance, but it's something based on recent events and their, their reading of the situation that could be calmed by, uh, by his assurance. His assurance was that the president could not take any action, I think, without the participation of the uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and other members of the military. And the implication was they would be a calming effect. They would not allow anything precipitate to be done. Now, as a number of critics have pointed out, and in this case correctly, he was, uh, to, to the extent that he was implying he could prevent the president from doing this, he was predicting an unconstitutional and illegal action by himself or the others. Under our Constitution, no military man, including and no Secretary of Defense, uh, can override the decision of the Commander-in-Chief that the defense of the United States, the national security of the United States, demands a particular kind of military action. Uh, the President does have the power to do that, and constitutionally, so far, that includes nuclear weapons. As some people have pointed out, when the Founders put the uh, Declaration of War in the hands exclusively of Congress uh, back more than 200 years ago, they did not foresee nuclear weapons. Nevertheless, the Constitution remains that way, and the president, but the president on his side can repel an attack or can decide what to do militarily. Milley is telling us, in effect, it has come out through Woodward and others, I think that he was prepared to uh, go against that and to protect the nation from a mad or absolutely dangerous action by his commander-in-chief. It would be insubordination. And it was a case that called for insubordination. He could, of course, be fired instantly and replaced by somebody who would obey the Constitution and carry it out. And we can imagine that person in turn 
refusing and having a kind of Saturday Night Massacre effect. But the fact is that the president does have, have ability. Specifically, though, what has, Milley has not said that he told General Lee or the Chinese that he would prevent this, simply that he would, be, he would participate in the decision. Uh, that's not really called for, but uh, it does not imply that he would not in the end have carried it out or that a successor for, to him would not have carried it out. Now, he, in other words, saw this as an extremely dangerous situation, and we've been through this before. It was indeed a dangerous situation. As Lee worried the Chinese and the others, yes, a chain of events could have occurred that would have, uh, under current planning and current commitments, have resulted in a catastrophic nuclear war between the U.S. and China, which could have been short-circuited at one level or another by one side or the other backing off. And experience shows that could be possible, but not that it's guaranteed that we'd have a process of escalation. Now, we've actually been here before in the most dangerous way. Most Americans imagine, even historians when they write about it, that the single time that the world has been in really serious, imminent danger of an all-out nuclear war was the last stage of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, they didn't know that for a long time, but when they learned how close subordinates were to attacking each other, submarines, airplanes, in the process, they see that we were indeed close to nuclear war, and they think of that as the only time. That's definitely not true. The 1958-59 crisis in Taiwan was believed then by the acting Secretary of State, Christian Herter, to have been the first nuclear crisis and comparable to that of the, the later one of the Cuban Missile Crisis. That's from his point of view. The U.S. thought themselves that close, and yet they were going ahead. In retrospect, we know that was not that dangerous because China and Russia had no intention, whatever, of allowing it to, to get that far, but we didn't know that. And so we were taking actions that our leaders thought might well lead to nuclear war. But in 1983, I would say we came the closest, closer than the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis even, to an all-out nuclear war. And very few Americans are aware of it, although there are several books on the subject now that go into it in great detail, the 1983 war scare uh, or alert. And I, I could spend a lot of time going into the dangers of that. It's, it's extremely relevant historically. But let me just give the essence, which applies today as well. We knew years after that, we learned uh, from an analysis of our intelligence sources that what a defector had told us earlier was right. That Andropov, the uh, president, chairman in the uh, Soviet Union at that time, former KGB head, and in the last year of his life, actually, I think that's not irrelevant uh, to his mood or his expectations, but he was on a dialysis machine in a hospital carrying out his decisions and died uh, a year later, was convinced that Ronald Reagan was planning a first strike, that his talk about an evil empire and the need to uh, deal with the uh, Soviet Union on a basis of strength, accompanied by something that Andropov knew and most Americans did not, that Reagan was conducting extremely provocative 
exercises along and inside the borders of the Soviet Union, sending surveillance planes into the coastland or near the coastland, interfering with their planes, doing various things, quote, to put the Soviets, make them tense, put them off balance one way or another. Uh, efforts that were so secret that most people in the government didn't even know of them at that time. But they did look like reconnaissance for a first strike. And of course, Reagan was at that time involved in the then largest buildup of nuclear weapons that had ever occurred. There were buildups under Eisenhower, buildups under Kennedy, uh, and later uh, buildup under um, recent presidents. But this was for the time the biggest buildup there had ever been. And it was very largely in weapons that were designed for first strike, highly accurate weapons uh, designed and intended to attack Soviet hardened missiles, which could only be done effectively striking first. They would have no effect striking after the Soviet missiles had left their silos. So either they would go first in an expectation that the Soviets were about to strike preemptively, or out of the blue. Uh, and although that was very far from the mind of any president that has actually uh, come in that I know of, Andropov was not sure of that at all. Andropov, in fact, believed that an exercise in NATO, able archer exercise, was in fact a cover, possibly, for a first strike. See, that was far from the reality. And yet, uh, we were acting as if we were preparing for a first strike. When Reagan found out about this, uh, at the end of it, he was astonished. So how could they have believed this? And, uh, and he did draw the inference how dangerous it had been uh, that they had believed it. In any case, believing this, Andropov had set up the largest intelligence worldwide exercise uh, effort that had ever been done in world history by anyone. And uh, it was in order to get intelligence of a possible immediate, imminent U.S. first strike. So all over the world, he had agents uh, pursuing an endless number of possible indicators, including in the D.C. area, where lights on at night in the State Department and the Pentagon, and uh, cars even on weekends, th things like that. But an enormous number of sports, anything that uh, appeared to be any kind of alert or special exercise, uh, he was alert for. Nothing could be more dangerous in the nuclear era, since especially both sides had doomsday machines from the mid-60s on. So the purpose of this intelligence exercise then, which had no other purpose than to prepare for a preemptive attack. Uh, otherwise, <laughs> why no? If you're going to be attacked, it's not going to make any difference, in fact. But both sides believed that warning could serve worthwhile if it led you to preempt uh, this attack. That situation is, of course, already extremely dangerous, but above all, it is prone then to a false alarm of a kind that's occurred many times on both sides from tactical warning systems, electronic, radar, uh, satellite reconnaissance that we have in system that will tell us that enemy vehicles are on the way. They're not just going to come in a day or a week, but they're on the way. It's really virtually too late to do anything about that. But we are planned as to respond to that by getting our missiles off the ground before the enemy warheads occur and getting as many of their warheads as have not yet 
been launched. Both sides, I say, are on this delusional, uh, dangerous, first, uh, preemptive system. Each side has had false alarms repeatedly that said enemy missiles were on their way, but they've been disproven before an actual preemption occurred. Uh, they've gotten as high in after the Cold War in 1995, with Yeltsin being told that enemy missile was on its way to Moscow. And fortunately, he did not preempt until it had time to discover that it wasn't, in fact, uh, on its way to Moscow. It was a weather missile that had been misinterpreted. In 1983, then, in the midst of Andropov's belief that a, that an, a, a soon-to-come NATO exercise might be a cover for a first strike. Uh, Petrov, Petrov, a colonel in the Soviet side who was in charge of uh, monitoring warnings from satellite uh, warning systems, was in the control booth at near midnight. He wasn't supposed to be there that night, but somebody else had fallen ill and he took that position. And red lights began uh, shining, alarms were going off, missiles were on their way. First one missile, two missiles, several others were missile trajectories from the U.S. toward the Soviet Union. Eventually, I think uh, five, uh, he got up. But meanwhile, all of his subordinates were telling him to assure his superiors that an attack was underway. Petrov was not sure. And uh, for one thing, he was waiting to see indications from ground radars later whether those missiles were on the way, as the satellite warning appeared to show. And they weren't showing that, but which one was right? The ones that were not showing or the ones that were showing? Petrov was religious. And one thing he said later, you know, he believed it would be against God's will to blow up the world if it were not necessary. He never indicated that if he believed the attack, he would have refrained from passing on that warning. But as it was not sure that it was uh, a true attack, he told his superiors a falsehood in his eyes. He said, it is a false alarm. He didn't know that. Had he told them, and he conveyed this to me when I had a communication with him, had he told them what he really believed, that it was 50-50. It might be, and it might not be. He believed that in that state of alert that they were, and warning and alarm, they would have preempted with a, uh, on a 50-50 basis. And he didn't want to do that. When it turned out that no missile attack occurred, he was waiting himself in 10 minutes here to see what happened, he was reprimanded for not having told his superiors what he had really believed. And uh, that there was a back and forth on that as to how he would be treated. He was finally forced to retire early with something like a nervous breakdown, ended up uh, living on potatoes in his own garden, as a matter of fact. But he's described in a BBC uh, documentary as the man who saved the world. And that's true. He did, just as another Russian in the Cuban Missile Crisis has also had a documentary with the same title, uh, Arkhipov on a submarine who did save the world in his case. So we have a world that is dependent on just the right unusual Russian or perhaps American commander in the right spot at the right time to short circuit this process. 
Now, when we hear about, uh, by the way, Andropov thought Reagan was mad. Andropov Reagan was deranged with his talk about, and many people in America would have agreed with him, rightly or wrongly, and was it, and that was in the context of this major buildup. Right now, uh, in our past president, of course, was rather widely regarded as deranged. And according to Milley, the general, it has come out now in the last days that he believed that the president, he was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, working with the president constantly. He believed that President Trump had mentally declined significantly since the election. If that were true, it would be understandable, would it not? Uh, whatever he'd been before the election, that election is an extremely depressing event, as it was for Hillary Clinton, for example, four years earlier. How, how could it help but be? But in any case, it's not amazing that the Chinese were worried that they were facing an unstable, deranged president in Donald Trump. And they were not total disagreement with, well, as a matter of fact, let's talk about a, a, an exchange that has just come out. Remember, President Trump was still the commander in chief at this time in January 6th. On January 8th, I believe it was, uh, the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, is now reported has agreed to have had an exchange with the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, saying, he's crazy. You know that. You can't say otherwise. He is crazy. And Milley said to him, I am in total agreement with you. Now, is that, that is a dangerous situation for the world. And uh, could happen again, uh, you know, with another president or any president. By the way, not to spend time on it, but with the, uh, with the um, studies that I've been making for 50 years here now, the pattern of at least occasional president uh, instability is much greater than the American people have ever been told. Uh, I won't go spend the time on it now, but even President Kennedy, including during the missile crisis, was uh, getting um, uh, amphetamines at that time, seriously, that his brother was quite concerned about. Uh, Johnson, in the very decision-making of 1965, which the more you know about it, and I know a lot about it, the more crazy it seems. It seems uh, hard to understand when you know the actual calculations that were being made. And at that time, two of his closest aides, Richard Goodwin, his speechwriter, and Bill Moyers, and almost sunlightly, each came to the conclusion that at that time, in the spring of 65, their boss, President Johnson, was clinically paranoid and was crazy. And they felt they simply wouldn't be believed if they, if they put this out earlier, but there's a lot of evidence for it. Uh, Nixon, of course, especially in his later days, showed symptoms that led his Secretary of Defense to do exactly what General Milley just did. In fact, Milley and his aides described it as pulling a Schlesinger, referring to Secretary of Defense Schlesinger, who ordered, who told his military uh, commanders not to accept an order from the president that did not go through Schlesinger. I repeat, that is against his, the law, his obligations, his oath, uh, and uh, the Constitution to do that. But in this emergency, 
He felt it was right to do it, and nobody has really ever contradicted that. Nixon was drinking heavily and showed extreme depression in uh, as he faced the impeachment. Again, understandably, but that he was commander-in-chief, and uh, just as Johnson had in the spring of 65. So we come to this situation now with a, a president feeling that nothing other than a war can keep him in office. A small war, but with China that could become a big war. Okay, so I'm, I am saying, uh, I believe, um, I will infer from what we now know, which is a minimal, uh, haven't even got the book yet, uh, it's going to arrive next week by Woodward uh, on this subject. But I think looking back on this, we may very well uh, conclude, uh, not that we were close to nuclear war, because it seems that the commander, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs and other officers were prepared to be fired, to resign, to be court-martialed, perhaps, to disobey this, that they were alert. So we could say there wasn't a big chance, except that the president had actually assigned people uh, like Esper and others to the Secretary of Defense on the basis of his belief in their thorough loyalty to him, which could have been the case. In other words, I'm saying, yes, we have a highly nuclear-armed world now in which, A, instability by a leader, uh, there is no guarantee, uh, will be prevented from, uh, from launching a war that kills most people on Earth. And second, that we it shows a perfect example that the kind of buildup we are now pursuing, including new ICBMs, new submarines with highly accurate missiles, as accurate in killing in a preemptive attack Russian uh, silo missiles as our own ICBMs are. We can do the same job with sub-launch missiles as with ICBMs. They just add to it. And uh, new air-launched cruise missiles, extremely accurate, and again, for really no other purpose than destroying, disarming the other side. All of this, and the Russians are doing much the same, all of this in the context where disarming the other side cannot go to a point that saves mankind from destruction. Because the submarines at sea cannot reliably be destroyed by either side to a point that will save civilization from destruction if they're used. In other words, you can't disarm the enemy. China is not attempting to do that. Neither are any of the other uh, six uh, uh, nuclear-armed states attempting to do that. But the U.S. and Russia still, why, and why? The U.S., because it is highly profitable to make those weapons, and that means not only that CEOs of corporations and stockholders get fortunes, but the jobs in nearly every district in the country depend on those weapons. They've been deliberately distributed by contract around the world so that there is a war as countrywide lobby and constituency to keep building the same kinds of weapons, which are first strike weapons that have no relation to the deterrence of nuclear attack. But they do have a relation externally to our alliance relationships in that we claim a protectorate, hegemonic relation to our West European and other allies by virtue of our willingness to protect them with these weapons. So are those, those are reasons. They are not reasons 
that justify risking the world. 